This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. for you some comments and then I'm going to tell you where these comments are from wow mama mia these are all separate comments by the way wow mama mia heart heart smiley heart face 100 smiley heart face next comment great body smiley face with hearts in place of the eyes next comment love next comment Four smiley faces with hearts in face of the in place of the eyes. Next comment, perfect bikini body. Next comment, one, two, three, four, five hearts, followed by three smiley emoticons with a tongue sticking out, followed by three smiling emoticons with hearts over the eyes, followed by one, two, three, four, five fires. The next comment, mmm. Take that bikini off. The next comment, three straight lines of smiley faces with hearts in place of the eyes, fires to represent flames, hearts and hearts. Next comment, you're so hot. Next comment, a mixture of hearts, smiley faces, lipstick as if to mean a kiss, 100. The next comment, y'all are dogs, she's a child. What are those the comments to? Those are the comments that follow a real photo of a nine-year-old girl in a golden bikini lounging on a towel. The photo was posted on her Instagram account, which is run by adults. They say uh, the primary job of journalism is to... Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Let me tell you, I was quite comfortable and quite afflicted. I was quite comfortable before reading the Sunday front page story in the New York Times headline. Um, the, I mean, this was almost a story that was incredible, too incredible to believe. Headline: A marketplace of girl influencers managed by moms. Incredible story in the New York Times. The full headline is managed by moms and stalked by men. You see, seeking social media stardom for their underage daughters, mothers post images of them on Instagram. And these accounts, in some cases, are making a lot of money for these children, but they are drawing men sexually attracted to children, and these men sometimes pay to see more. This is one article that I promise you is incredibly disturbing, but you absolutely have to read so you know what is going on in this this social media world with children and with Parents who, as far as I'm concerned, have totally abdicated their role of protecting their children. They've made it so much worse. Understand, you cannot join Instagram until you're 13 years old. The only way around that is to have a parent set up a page for you. Parents are the driving force behind these accounts. Some offer the sale of photos. Some offer exclusive chat sessions. And even the girls I can't even say this, worn leotards for sale to mostly unknown male followers. As far as I'm concerned, and I am the biggest free speech advocate there is, this is um, like putting bait before a bunch of piranhas who happen to be, would be sex offenders and or pedophiles. And as the accounts gain followers... They also draw a higher proportion of males. And interacting with the men opens this door to abuse. One calculation 
by an audience demographics firm found that 32 million connections to male followers among the 5,000 accounts examined by the Times, lest anyone think this is just a focus on four or five Instagram accounts. In addition, an analysis using image classification software from Google indicates that the suggestive posts are the ones more likely to receive likes and comments. I am beside myself with this story. I want to bring in someone who's not only a veteran broadcast journalist and a great talk show host, but also uh, the father of a daughter and the grandfather of a granddaughter, uh, my colleague at WABC in New York, Dominic Carter. Uh, Dominic, you've seen the story in The Times. What do you make of this? You already know what I think. Uh, And anybody with a brain understands that this is disgusting. Yeah. I can't believe I'm going to say this. You might as well, you're close to prostituting your child. Mm. What happens when that nine-year-old girl who knows nothing about puberty, sex, what happens when she goes to school and one of these nut jobs finds out who she is and follows her to school? What happens when these men, and these men need to be ashamed of themselves, and if they're the ones doing it, uh, my answer to them is, What goes around comes around. Remember, you may have a daughter too. Even if you don't have a daughter right now, you and and what what we're doing is we're we're sexualizing children where their innocence is gone. Right. If you're gonna dress a nine year old uh, in a very provocative way, what do you think her behavior is ultimately going to become? Yeah, I I think that's a, a great point. And what's even more disturbing is that account owners who would report some of these explicit images or potential predators to Instagram, they're generally met with either silence or indifference. So I think the social media companies have to uh, have to bear some culpability here as well. As 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 they often do. But but here's my message to the men that are taking part in this. The FBI doesn't consider this funny. Mm -hmm. And so the FBI does a lot of online screening. And if some of your comments go over the top, you may be getting a call or a visit from the FBI. This is disgusting. These girls, again, these young girls have not even reached puberty. Puberty. And and you are pimping them out and your mom and dad. What is wrong with you? I understand that people have financial needs. I get it. Some people, you know, they don't have a job, they're, they're starving, but but then, God forbid, when your child is raped, then what? I think the other issue here is the children themselves are putting a lot of pressure on the parents that they want to be social media influencers. This is one of the most sought-after careers from right. young people, and they're seeing uh, an easy way to get followers, an easy way to get likes, not necessarily right. understanding what the ramifications are. Let me just say this, and this is what I call the Kim Kardashian effect, right? So Kim Kardashian does a sex tape with uh, Ray J, whatever his yeah. name is, and they say that her family pushed it out, right? And she becomes a star. So everybody, look at what the Kim Kardashian effect has done to America. With no disrespect to her, we have been dumbed down in every aspect that you can think of. So you want to be the next Kim Kardashian, right? Not many people are going to reach that fame, and what's the price for getting there? Yeah, uh, you said it, Dominic. Uh, thank you. Thank you. If people want to weigh in, I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, again, this is a beautiful, and it's a terrible article, but it's a well-done, beautifully done piece of journalism by The Times. Very comprehensive, reviewing over 5,000 accounts, and... The question that I was wondering when I started reading this is how do the parents react once these creepy guys start essentially I'll I'll put it perving out on their daughters. Well, some parents refuse to give in to creepy bullies and others regret ever opening an account. 800-848-9222. A mother in Australia whose daughter is now 17, said she worried that a childhood spent sporting bikinis online for adult men had scarred her, and she warned mothers to avoid her mistakes. She tells the Times, this is in Australia, I've been stupidly, naively feeding a pack of monsters, and the regret is huge. That's what she said. Now, compare that 
to what a mother in Alabama said. A mother in Alabama said parents couldn't ignore the reality of this new economy. Quote, social media is the way of our future, and I feel like they'll be behind if they don't know what's going on. I understand what she's saying about social media being the wave of the future and this being how people draw uh, a following and make money now. And and I'm trying to build a social media following, honestly. I'm on um, Instagram at Morano Vision. This is a step too far, as far as I'm concerned. This is um, inviting pedophilia and encouraging pedophilia. I'm not super uptight. I'm not a guy that gets crazy. This is enough to drive everybody crazy. And although it's rare, there have been some criminal prosecutions against parents accused in child sexual abuse cases. Even the most unsettling images of sexualized child influencers tend to fall into this legal gray area. Because to me, you know, Dominic was talking about the FBI, to meet the federal definition of so-called child pornography, the law generally requires a lascivious exhibition of the, of the genital area. Though courts have found the requirement can be met without nudity or sheer clothing. Really an interesting piece by uh, Michael Keller and Jennifer Valentino DeVries. I encourage you to read it. I just posted it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right. Um, if you want to comment, give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. Uh, coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to talk with former Minnesota Governor Tim Pawlenty. Governor Pawlenty um, had a pretty good record as a Republican governor in Minnesota. We're very, very pleased to be heard on WCCO in Minneapolis these days. And then... He ran for president himself and uh, didn't necessarily do that well in the presidential race, but he was seen as sort of a, a rising star, not only in Republican politics in Minnesota, but nationally. And a lot of folks are wondering, are you know, do the Republicans actually have a chance at winning? In Minnesota. So we're going to get into that with him in about 15 minutes. But I, I have to tell you, since reading this story in The Times, I have been incredibly disturbed, incredibly disturbed, because interacting with the men that are commenting and following all of these girls' photos, it really does open the door to abuse. And some of these men flatter the girls and their parents. Some of them bully and blackmail the girls and their parents in order to get racier and racier images. And the Times monitored separate exchanges on Telegram, which is another social media app that's a little a little more loosely regulated than most of the other ones. And it's a messaging app, basically, where men, adult men, openly fantasize about sexually abusing the children they follow on Instagram and extol the platform for making the images so readily available. I find this incredibly troubling, and this comes as social media companies increasingly dominate every aspect of the cultural landscape. And the Internet really is seen, as I was alluding to a couple of minutes ago, as a career path on its own. Nearly one in three preteens, meaning 10, 11, 12, lists influencing as a career goal. One in three. And 11% of those born in Generation Z, those are folks born between the years 1997 and 2012, describe themselves as influencers. So this so-called creator economy surpasses $250 billion worldwide. That's according to Goldman Sachs. But if you listen to health and technology experts... They've cautioned that social media presents a profound risk of harm, especially for girls, especially for girls, because the constant comparisons to their peers and these face altering filters, they're driving negative feelings of self-worth and they're promoting objectification of their bodies. But when you deal with the, as, as Dominic referred to it, the sexualization of children, 
uh, basically for this market of pervy adult men, it enters a whole new era and a whole new place of being really destructive and really damaging to the psyche of these women and to, I mean, it's just, I just find this, I just can't imagine as a parent being okay with with something like this. I just really have such a problem with it. It's uh, so objectionable from from my perspective. There was a film out, uh, if you want to comment, please do so, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. There was a film that came out about 10 years ago. It's called Men, Women, and Children, and it was directed by Jason Reitman, the son of the famous producer uh, Ivan Reitman, and Jason Reitman's a pretty well-known director in his own right. And I interviewed Jason when this film came out, so I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been a fan of Jason's work, so I made a point to see the film before I, uh, I interviewed him. And it's a, it's a well-done film. Adam Sandler, Jennifer Garner, a couple of other people who you would recognize, some other actors that you might not recognize. And in that film, it's one of these films that deals with multiple stories simultaneously. And in that film is, I think, a teenage girl who has her mom running a website where she's posing provocatively and getting these bonuses where people are paying to see scantily clad photos of her teenage daughter. And the mom is running it. And I remember watching this film and I was thinking to myself, you know, that's a little unrealistic. Every every parent might want their child to some extent be famous. Every parent might want their child to make money. There's no mom that would exploit, no loving mother that would exploit their their daughter so publicly like this. And I saw that when I I thought about that when I saw the film. Clearly, I was absolutely wrong. And what Jason Reitman was depicting in that film is a very real phenomenon, and uh, it's uh, it's personified in this New York Times piece. So I do hope you read it. I posted it up there on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. All right, uh, we're going to talk with uh, former governor of Minnesota, Tim Paul Lenti, in just a minute. If you want to comment on anything we're doing, feel free to do so, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, the latest station to join our ever-expanding empire of people that enjoy live, compelling, hopefully compelling, and entertaining overnight radio is WCCO in Minneapolis. And whenever we start on a new station, I put together a short list 
of people in that market that I'd love to get on the air to kind of make the people of that town feel like this is not just a nationally syndicated show that is trying to, you know, uh, force New York values down their throat, but that it's really an extension of a lot of their hometown interests and a lot of their hometown values. And shockingly, a lot of the things that people in Minneapolis are interested in are also things that people in New York are interested in. A lot of the things that people in St. Louis are interested in are people things uh, that folks are in Las Vegas are interested in. So when we uh, started airing on WCCO in Minneapolis, I put together a short list of folks that I was very eager to have on. And the person who was at or near the top of that list is someone who, when he was governor of the great state of Minnesota, actually did a weekly show on WCCO, still has a tremendous following. A lot of people around the country may remember him from when he ran for president and was considered, uh, this is, I guess, going back about uh, 16 years, very much a national rising star, particularly in Republican politics. Very pleased uh, to welcome to the other side of Midnight former governor of Minnesota, Tim Pawlenty. Governor, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for coming on the radio with me. Great to be with you and your listeners, Frank, and thank you for those kind comments. Uh, No, it's my pleasure. Governor, a lot of folks haven't seen you in the public eye for uh, some time. Uh, What have you been up to? Anything exciting? What's uh, retirement life? How much golf can you play? (laughs) I'm trying to find that out, I guess. (laughs) Well, I tell you, I I, uh, ran for president, and thank you for uh, mentioning that, although most people understandably wouldn't remember it. I I like to say that my uh, campaign for president was more brief than a Kardashian marriage, so it was quite short (laughs) uh, and and unmemorable in most respects. After that, I became the CEO of something called the Financial Services Roundtable, which is a trade association of large financial service companies that deal with all kinds of aspects of the economy and and capital formation, capital deployment around the country. And then I finished up that and was serving on some boards, but now I am nearly retired, so I'm enjoying that sort of lifestyle and uh, miss politics and public service, but I took it as far as I could. You know, it's funny that you talk about your brief presidential candidacy. My hometown is uh, heavily uh, Italian in ethnicity, and a lot of folks had you polling very high in my hometown just because they thought your name was Paul Lenti. L-E-N-T-I. Everyone would say, oh, I'm for Paul Lenti. I'm for Paul Lenti. That's uh, that's who they were uh, they were supporting. Hey, um, a lot of folks are wondering because Minnesota has elected Republicans, Democrats, even a couple of independents over the years. Uh, the Republicans always seem pretty optimistic about Minnesota in the general election. Although it hasn't gone red in quite some time, even Walter Mondale managed to win Minnesota in 1984, the only state he ended up winning. Do you think, given what's going on in the country now, that there's any chance Minnesota actually may go red in the general election in 2024? Or are Republicans that are hoping for that being unrealistic? Well, I'll give you a little history and then in my opinion on your answer to your question. Um, Minnesota has the longest unbroken streak of voting Democrat for president of any state in the nation, dating back to Richard Nixon as the last time Minnesota voted wow. for a Republican statewide. And by the way, that's compared to really liberal places like Hawaii and California and New York and Vermont and right. Massachusetts and others. So that's one measure. And by the way, a lot of political scientists believe that the Nixon uh, uh, election that I'm talking to is a so-called wave election, aberrational in that regard. And if you really want to go back to a base election, you got to go all the way back to Eisenhower to look at a true test or measure of when Minnesota last voted Republican for president. And there are certainly pockets of conservatism and Republicanism in Minnesota. But on a statewide basis, I was the last one to win there statewide in the year 2006. So that's going on 20 years. Mm. And that's not a good history. So I do think a Republican could win statewide, but it'd be foolish to say anything other than it's a uphill climb in my state. It can happen. Uh, Nothing stays the same. There's always room for hope and optimism, but uh, the recent track record has been very poor. I do think, um, you know, regardless of what people think of Trump, because of, of how frustrated people are with issues like illegal immigration, as an example, there could be um, there could be some hope in Minnesota, especially you know Nikki Haley or Trump. I think could give Biden a run for his money in Minnesota, but they always seem to fall at least a few points short. So that's the tale of the tape of politics and statewide in Minnesota. 
In your view, why has Minnesota, which, look, has a large rural community, which uh, has a lot of small-town folks, a lot of uh, working-class white folks that seem to make up the backbone of the Trump coalition, why has it been so reliably Democrat when demographically, economically, it doesn't necessarily look like uh, solid blue states like New York and California, which most people would assume would go Democrat? What's behind the Democrats' electoral success in Minnesota? That's a great question, Frank. And and I think the answer in oversimplified terms is this. Republicans tended to do better in recent years where not many people live, and Democrats tended to do relatively better in places where more people live. And to be more specific, if you look at Minnesota, a map of Minnesota in terms of the political demographics and election results in a statewide race, you see a lot of red in the rural areas. But if you population weighed it, um, the Democrats sort of encroached into first the first ring suburbs and the second ring suburbs and more recently the third ring suburbs and Republicans ceded territory in those suburbs. And so, yes, we gained market share, so to speak, in rural areas, but we lost market share in the suburbs, particularly the second and third ring suburbs, because we long ago lost the first ring suburbs. And that doesn't mean those people can't be persuaded to come back. Uh, to be very blunt about it, I think they voted last time because uh, the way they did for Biden, um, because they didn't like Trump, some of them. And that cost us hmm. uh, you know, a lot of margin in the race. Minnesota has a and history a of, of election. A, a lot of those folks, Frank, are, you know, um, you know, not all of them, but those swing voters in places like Minnesota, and the third ring suburbs tend to be women and not just, uh, you know, a monolith of of the gender, but also people with particular political demographic profiles as Hmm. well. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, former Minnesota governor, Republican governor from Minnesota, Tim Pawlenty. Minnesota has a history of electing some colorful characters and some eccentric characters. Uh, we've seen, obviously, probably the best known example is Jesse Ventura, who's uh, an occasional guest on this show. Obviously, the former Saturday Night Live star Al Franken went to the Senate from Minnesota. But even going back to the 30s and 40s, folks like Harold Stassen, who seemed like a a great uh, character in all of uh, American political history. What is it about Minnesota that you think has their electorate so open-minded to uh, electing people that are, shall we say, a little eccentric, maybe a little out of the box? Yeah, well, that's a great question also. And I think it's because Minnesota is a populist state. And there's nothing wrong with the term populist. It means for the people reflecting the people's will. And Minnesota has elected some quirky people. Initially, a lot of people thought Paul Wellstone was quirky. I think he. Oh, well, right. Of course. Class. Yeah. And in any event, um, I think it's a forerunner of what you're seeing now. It was sort of an early canary, uh, not in the coal mine necessarily, but an early warning of the rise of populism in the country more broadly. I think Jesse Ventura although he's very different than Trump in terms of his political views and stances, has some of the same um, sort of political chemistry with the people as, as Trump does. And I think, you know, that was a forerunner to what we're seeing unfolding now. And I think once Biden is gone, there's going to be a rise of populism on the left, further populism on the left as well. So um, I think that's just to say, yes, Minnesota is a little quirky, but I also think they, they embraced populism probably earlier than big chunks of the rest of the country. You're still a very young man, certainly far too young to run for president, at least by probably by about uh, two decades these days, given the average age of uh, the major party candidates for president. You ran 16 years ago. As I mentioned, you were on everybody's shortlist for vice president in 2008. A lot of people's shortlist for vice president in 2012. Why didn't you run again? So many people who don't get the nomination the first time, Democrat and Republican, end up taking another shot and a lot of times are more successful. John McCain, Mitt Romney, Hillary Clinton. Why not give uh, going for the presidency another go? Well, I I gave it a good shot uh, as best I could anyhow in 2012. Um, I needed to move on and get into the private sector to take care of my family, Frank, to be blunt about it. I'm not one of these politicians who had a lot of money or inherited money or anything like that. And, uh, I needed to go get a real job, <laughs> and to be honest about it. And also, you know, time marches on just because you're popular in a moment in time. Four years is an eternity in politics. A new group rises up, you know, new governors, new senators, new other people. And so time marches on. And the ability to 
to catch uh, a wave a second time, not, not that I caught it the first time, um, you know, was nothing, uh, not certain. So, but the, the real honest, candid answer is I needed to go get a real job. Mm. Uh, understandable. Trust me, uh, I, I can absolutely relate. Let me ask you what, about what's happening in the presidential race these days. Nikki Haley, uh, she was defeated soundly in um, in South Carolina. Looks like she's probably going to suffer the same fate in Michigan. Do you think uh, now the Koch brothers have announced that uh, they'd been funding her candidacy? Uh, they've announced that they're going to instead focus their resources. And I, I realize there's only one Koch brother, but the Koch brothers network, they're going to focus their resources on the congressional races. Do you think Haley ends up staying in with the news that the Koch network is going to fund the congressional races instead of her presidential candidacy? I think she will stay in at least through March 5th because she's otherwise raising enough money to stay in. And candidates don't drop out uh, almost without exception until they run out of money. And she's raised uh, millions of dollars just since her South Carolina defeat in her home state. And I like Nikki Haley. I think she'd be a great president. I wish she was the party's nominee, but you know, she's not going to get there uh, absent some very strange set of developments. So she has enough money to stay in. I think at some point she has to weigh staying in. You know, uh, and any damage that might do versus a graceful exit. And normally you get out if you think you might be selected vice president, assuming, you know, you still have money because you don't want to annoy. You don't want to right. annoy the likely nominee by continuing to oppose him or her in the primary contest. But in this case, uh, Trump has indicated, or at least his people have, uh, that they will not likely select her. And she's indicated she's not that interested in VP. So, you know, that normal incentive to get out and compliment the likely nominee uh, goes out the window in this case as well. So I think she could hang around as long as she wants. But once it becomes mathematically obvious that Trump's going to be the nominee, there doesn't seem to be a lot of point to it. Well, so let's talk about that, right? I mean, I, I'm glad she's staying in the race because I wish uh, that everybody would stay in the race to give voters that are in late primary states an opportunity to vote, Democrat and Republican. It kills me, and I say this every cycle, that uh, by the time the New York primary comes around, oh, uh, you know, Tim Pawlenty's not in there. By the time the New Jersey primary comes around, um, you know, uh, Howard Dean's not in there. Whoever your favorite candidate might be, it seems like the field gets so winnowed down before or 80 or 90% of Americans get to vote. In the case of Nikki Haley, though, what I'm struggling to understand is why she's still running. She's very likely not going to be the vice president, very likely not going to be in a Trump cabinet, although with Trump, who knows? Um, what is she doing? Is this for building her own profile? Is this for waging some sort of an ideological uh, battle? Obviously, uh, you can't know her state of mind anywhere, any, you know, any more than I do. But you do know what it's like to run a national political campaign and be incredibly um, unlikely to be victorious. Why does she stay in the race, in your view? Well, one answer might be Trump is set to go to trial on March 25th. I don't know that she'll stay in that long, but in the in the documents case, I think it is. And let's say he gets convicted. There are some polling that suggests that a significant additional increment of Republicans would abandon him, his candidacy, if he actually is criminally convicted. I'm not sure he's going to be convicted. Um, so maybe, you know, there's a one or two percent chance that or something else unpredictable or strange happens to Trump and she just wants to be the last person around. You know, keep keep in mind there's political precedent for you know unexpected developments happening late in the campaign. Look at the Bill Clinton Gary Hart situation where there's a you know last not a last minute but late development and Clinton ends up being the, um, the president of the United States. But I, I do think your point is well taken. I think she's going to hang around through March 5th to kind of put a further marker out there about her brand, who she is, her role in the party, and frankly, uh, for four years from now, trying to say I'm the heir apparent. For four years from now, I think the hardcore Trump people have a lot to say about that and would, well, you know, will want somebody else. But at least she'll have sort of captured or at least uh, put a marker out for the part of the market that is, you know, not Trump people as, as the Republican Party potentially resets in the future. Uh, you bring up such an interesting, an interesting point, which is the Republican Party 
after Trump. On a lot of issues, Nikki Haley is very much kind of uh, an old school Republican. And when I say old school, I don't mean going back to the 50s or the 60s, but I'm talking about going back to the early 2000s. Ideologically, stylistically, she's much more similar to a George H.W. Bush, a Mitt Romney, a John McCain. And it's clear that's not where the Republican Party electorate is right now. Uh, Trump has moved the Republican Party into a much more populist direction in terms of ideology, in terms of its constituency, rather than appeal to the super wealthy country club types, the blue blood elitists, you're much more likely to see working class and middle class folks uh, gravitate to the Republican Party. A lot of folks that would have traditionally been thought of as Democratic voters. My question for you is, where do you see the GOP going after Trump, whether Trump wins in 2024 or whether he loses? Four years from now, are we going to see the GOP going back to running for candidates for president and the Senate that are more like a Romney, Haley, McCain, Jeb Bush style candidate? Or has Trump permanently changed the party into his image? Where do you see it going as a guy that's been in Republican politics your whole career? I do think that in part depends on whether Trump wins or loses. I also think it depends on how he and the economy and the country perform in a next term. And I also think it depends on who he picks as VP. And if he picks somebody who is a Trump uh, loyalist, but is also you know, marketable to a broader political audience and demographic audience, then I think that leaves the door wide open to the continuation of you know, the Trump change in the party or Trump 2.0 in the form of a, you know, a VP or somebody else who rises from that fold. I, I think the likelihood of it going back to what it was is small because nothing stays the same. Everything evolves and changes, including political parties. The idea that's just going back to what it was, I think, is, is probably naive or unrealistic. Um, I do think, though, that there will be a battle about whether it's going to be more like Trump or more like what you mentioned. But the Trump people have a lot of energy. And uh, if he but now if, if he loses and loses badly, then you know, there may be some reflex to try something different, including defaulting backwards. But I think the more likely scenario is the first one I just went through. You attempted a political comeback in 2018. You tried to run for, for governor. And uh, if memory serves, you were not successful in a Republican primary. That was after the Trump wave had swept the GOP nationally. Do you think that the fact that the Republican Party of Minnesota, which you were very popular with during your your tenure as governor and throughout your whole political career, the fact that they went with another candidate, was that an example of how the GOP had changed from the time that you left office to the time that you tried to make a comeback? Or were there other factors involved in that unsuccessful gubernatorial comeback? Well, I think I think the fact that the party had become a Trump party, I had said negative things uh, initially about uh, then candidate Trump back in 2016, and if I'm recalling the years correctly, um, and that cost me dearly. And the, the primary base, the caucus attendee base, you know, had become overwhelmingly Trump folks. And I was, uh, I think, on the wrong side of that equation, political equation, by having expressed uh, concern and also uh, be making critical comments about Trump. So, as I said, when I lost that primary, you know, it's Trump's party. I don't fit in it. And that those election results, I think, reflected primarily that reality. When you were governor, you went down to Mexico. You met with the Mexican president at the time, Vicente Fox. When we think of border issues and immigration issues, we tend to think of places that are border states like uh, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, or we tend to think of places that a lot of illegal immigrants or migrants might gravitate towards, like New York City, for instance, maybe Chicago. Um what is the what is the border situation and the migrant situation like on a daily basis in Minnesota? Do you guys see the daily effects of what's going on at the border? And more broadly, what do you think should be done on the border question, whether the president's Biden, whether the president's Trump or whether it's somebody else? What would you do to fix the border? It's a great question. It also reflects, I think, an issue, one of the main issues that are going to be processed in this upcoming election, and it should be. Um, Vicente Fox did come to Minnesota. I didn't go to Mexico. He came to Minnesota and 
uh, and chance to meet with him then. My mistake. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I ran multiple campaigns based on the notion that we have to get tough on immigration. We have to get uh, put a security first perspective on illegal immigration. And of course, we want to have orderly legal immigration in our country within a reasonable amount. But what we have now is out of control chaos. It is lawlessness. It undermines the rule of law in ways that uh, begins to erode confidence and also respect from others when they see this sort of flagrant violations. And it's a massive security problem. And it's gone from a few hundred thousand people a year estimated to a few million people a year. And we only have 360 million people in the country. And if you import two or three million people in, most of them illegal, uh, that's a major challenge and a major problem. And guess where a lot of the pressure is coming on social services, on public safety, on hospitals and government budgets. It's not unrelated to the rise in, uh, you know, migrants, including illegal immigrants. And so, and I I think they are making a mockery in many cases of the refugee system, originally intended to be a protective opportunity for people coming from war-torn countries. And now it's just flaunted, uh, you know, recklessly and obviously and almost in a comical fashion, sad, tragic fashion. Um, And I think the fact that our federal government refuses to do anything about it is outrageous and it's reckless and it's irresponsible. When I was governor, I sent the National Guard to the border to help out Texas or Arizona. I can't remember which one it was to reinforce the border. But the federal government needs to act to secure that border. And we need to make sure that we have a clear understanding of how many people we want to come in, that they come in legally, that the process is orderly, that it's fair, and that the people coming in are not a security concern or a security risk. And so I, I have um, you know, a lot of agitation, like a lot of Americans do, about the failure of our federal government to properly address this issue. Lastly, sir, and you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. Uh, Obviously, you are a Minnesotan. You know the Minneapolis-St. Paul audience very well, especially on WCCO. We'd certainly like to have the same sort of success in terms of ratings and everything else in terms of impact in Minneapolis that we've had in New York and a lot of other cities around the country. Sincerely, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to uh, how to put out there what Minnesotans like. Uh, any secret code language or any secret <laughs> terms that I can sneak into broadcast, subliminal or otherwise, that may help me yes. appeal to the uh, Minnesota audience. Yes, I think you should regularly work into your show uh, reaction uh, ufta. You don't even need to worry about what it means. You can just utter it. It's, does, it's not profane or inappropriate anyway. When somebody makes a point that is, uh, you know, troubling or concerning or maybe uh, is something that's unsettling to you, you can say oofda. I think you can talk oofda. a lot about lutefisk, uh, which is a, you know, you, you can do your research on that. I think you can say skull endlessly and people will appreciate that. And then you can talk about, you know, hot dishes, people like that, and cold weather, winter. There's a lot of people love to talk about weather in Minnesota and much more, Frank. But that'll get the ball rolling for you. I love it. Love it. Uh, Governor Tim Pawlenty, thanks so much. I hope we can talk again. Anytime. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Oofta. Other side of midnight. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
If I could save time in a bottle, the first thing that I'd like to do is to save every day till eternity passes away, just to spend them with you. If I could make days last forever. If words could make wishes come true, I'd save every day like a treasure, and then again I would spend them with you. But there never seems to be enough time to do the things you want to do once you find them. I've looked around enough to know. Time in a bottle by the great Jim Croce. This is a uh, birthday bumper music selection from celebrity chef David Burke, one of the best chefs in America, a great guy and a good friend. Uh, It's a couple other people's birthdays uh, today, too, I can't recall. Uh, But uh, David Burke is an American institution, a gifted chef, and a man with a kindred sense of humor. If you ever have the opportunity to dine at one of David Burke's restaurants, I say go for it because you will absolutely not be disappointed. I'll tell you who's disappointed. Me. I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. You might recall a week or two ago, I told you we went to my mother-in-law's all the way out on eastern Long Island. It's about, if you're not familiar with the geography, it's about a two-hour maybe two-and-a-half-hour drive from where my wife and I live. And it was uh, sort of a joint celebration of my brother-in-law's birthday, my sister-in-law's birthday, and my mother-in-law's birthday. You know, they all all have birthdays relatively close to one another, so you have all the February birthdays have a cake together. And my co-brother-in-law, James, married to um, my beautiful sister-in-law, Sharon, Uh, they're expecting a brand-new baby within the next couple of weeks. Great guy, wonderful guy. And he brought me a beautiful bottle of Glenlivet. Glenlivet aged 12 years. And you know how it is when you have a two-year-old. I can't imagine when you have multiple little children, but just one two-year-old and you're trying to leave someplace, you're trying to wrangle him, he's squirming, you're trying to carry all of his stuff, plus in the winter you got coats, you got shoes, you got all this stuff you're trying to carry, and, you know, he, somebody's temperamental, oh, you're in the middle of saying goodbye to everybody. And so my brother-in-law James gave me this bottle of scotch, beautiful bottle of scotch, and I'm on the wagon now for Lent, so I didn't try any then, but I was looking forward to ending my... Lenten, you know, abstention from alcohol with nice, you know, nice glass of scotch. So my mother-in-law sees this scotch and she says to me, she reminds me, who's or she says in general, whose is this? I said, oh, it's mine. James gave it to me. She said, you're going to take it with you, right? I said, ideally. And it's kind of funny. Everybody laughed. And I forgot the scotch. I forgot the scotch because I'm too busy, you know, dealing with karma. So I left it there, but I don't want anything to happen to this. So I send an SMS text message to my brother-in-law, Adam, who lives there with his wife. And I say, I said, please do me a favor and watch this. I, I he, he messaged me. He said, it looks like you've left the Glenlivet. I guess we don't live in an ideal world. I said, oh, no. I said, Rachel is going to pick it up when she's out there on March 3rd uh, for Sharon's sprinkle. It's too much stuff to carry. Please Hide it until then. That's what I said. Please hide it until then. He said, oh, I'll make sure Eric doesn't get into it. That's his, that's, you know, our nephew, Sharon's, you know, uh, baby boy. I said, seriously, can you put it aside for me? Seriously. Because Adam's a jokester. It's very difficult to be serious with him. He responds, I sure can. My response, thank you. That was on February 18th, Okay. Yesterday afternoon, I received an SMS text message from my brother-in-law, Jared, who also lives there. Hey, Frank, I had some of the Glenlivet. I didn't realize James got it for you. Sorry. Now, 
I don't mind sharing with Jared or anybody else. You know, I mean, it's very nice of James to give me that uh, scotch, and I would certainly share it with anybody, but especially a family member. But I just wonder, what was my brother-in-law Adam doing in terms of guarding it? What was the process of hiding it that he was using? I mean, is it that hard to hide a bottle of scotch? Hide it in your room. Throw it in the broom closet. Throw it in a safe. I said, I sent him this text message, and I said, I thought you were guarding this. And Adam responds, I was guarding it, but I suppose some things cannot be guarded from someone who's determined in such fields as he is. And I said, sheesh. He responds, it's like asking me, it's like asking me not to let William Shatner on your spaceship. That's what he said. So I guarantee you by the time Rachel picks up this Glenn Livett next week, there's going to be nothing left, but so be it. Easy come, easy go. It's a shame because, you know, James went to the trouble of getting me this scotch and procuring the scotch in the first place, and to have Jared pilfer it, it's got to be, it's got to be, it's got to be difficult on James. So I'm fine with it, but it's got to be tough on James. All right, 800-848-9222. Two open lines, a bunch of people wanting to comment. I don't want to rush you in your comment for 40 seconds, so we'll hold you over to the top of the hour and have you comment then. Uh, Next hour, we're also going to read through some of your email correspondence. So if you want your email read on the radio, just email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Until next hour, in the words of the late, great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Every day, We rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers.